Folks, good morning, and uh, can I add my welcome to you that the police has already given you, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. If you are visiting to help you know who I am, my name is David McCullough, and I'm the assistant minister here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. Over these past few Sunday mornings, we've been starting our new series looking in 1 Corinthians, and so it will be helpful for you to have the Bible open at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 on page 1144. This is now our third week into looking at uh, this letter, and so we're going to take it further this morning as we look through from chapter 18 through, or sorry, verse 18 of chapter 1 through to verse 5 of chapter 2. So last week we finished in verse 17 with these amazing words, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is where we finished off. This is Paul's conclusion for what we had looked at uh, from verse 4 last week. Thinking about disputes, the, the issues that happen in church that we don't like, the things that sit unhappy with us. How do we deal with those? We recognize that everything we do is for the sake of the gospel It is for the sake of the message of the cross. How do we get over these things? We remember it's all about Jesus, and it's not about us. That's where Paul has left them. In many respects, that should be enough. But the Corinthian church has so much going on that that Paul has to continue. There's no way that he can stop here because he has to address things that are happening within that church, but also the influences that are happening from society at that time. And in a few minutes, we'll, we'll remind ourselves of what really was going on. So he's finished, and that's where we left off. So we're going to pick up. And the theme for today really is thinking about wisdom. Not necessarily the wisdom that is God-given, but the wisdom that the world has in thinking that it is God or that it can be its own God. So let's start with verse 18. This whole section can be split up into three different sections. Verses 18 to 25, Paul talks of the gospel as a contradiction to wisdom. Second, in verses 26 to 31, he talks about the Corinthian believers as God's folly. And finally, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, Paul talks about his own preaching as God's folly. So we'll, we'll take it in that order. So the gospel as a contradiction to wisdom. Paul starts off, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He starts with a contrast. To those who are perishing... This is complete foolishness. They look at us and they think those stupid people. How could they ever believe anything like this? But to those who believe, to those who are found in Jesus Christ, it is a different perspective. The contrast is, although the world calls it foolishness, to the believer it is the power of God that is at work in their lives because it is a transforming Whenever we think of salvation, and whenever we think of that 
moment when sin first came into the world in Genesis 3, and we think to where we are today, we recognize everyone is born, shapen in iniquity, sinful from the word go. And yet God does a transforming work that says, even though you have consequences for that sin, if you're found in Jesus, those consequences are no longer there. Because being found in Him, you recognize the transforming power that is at work in your life. So the contrast is between the perishing and those who are being saved. And this is not the way the world thought at this time. Whenever we think of our Old Testament learning and what we know from it, it was the Jews and the Gentiles. Even in the ministry of Jesus, there were two groups of people in their thinking, Jews, people, God's chosen people, and Gentiles, everyone else, those who were not Jewish by birth or, or by the rights of, of coming into that community. Well, here Paul throws the, the board game off the table and puts a new one down, saying, no, it's not Jew and Gentile anymore, it's those who are perishing and those who are saved. Whether they be of Greek origin, Roman origin, Jewish origin, pagan, heathen origin from the East, it didn't matter. He is saying there's a new landscape, and that landscape is those who are perishing and those who are saved. And it's because of Christ that there's this new distinction. He tells them this. He says, you must remember. I've just finished a little section that talks about Christ. Well, again, the message of the cross. It's because of the cross that you're knowing the power of God at work in your lives. It's important that we understand why Paul starts like this in this little section. There's so much going on in this church. The influences around are, are unbelievable, and the fights and disputes within it, we can only imagine that this is the tip of the iceberg. So what's happening? The church had disputes within it. There were people who thought they were better than other people. They were people who thought they had a higher intelligence than other people. They were splitting up into little factions. Do you remember that last week? If you look just back a little bit in verse 12, Paul hears it from those in Chloe's household that says, well, there's people saying they're either following Paul, Peter, Apollos, or Christ. In other words, whoever was the one who preached that tickled their ears that they liked or the one who led them to Christ, they started following them and their teaching as a personality. We said last week there was no doubt that in their minds they knew they were following Christ, but the disputes and the factions were growing because they were saying, well, I follow this little group, and I follow this little group, and I follow this little group. So there are disputes within the church, and they were heavily influenced by the world around them. Corinth, one of the major trading centers of the ancient world, people flocking and gathering on the main trade route between Corinth and Ephesus. And with their trade came their talk. They liked to debate. They liked to come with the latest philosophy to show how important they were and how developed they were in their thinking, and so the church was influenced by it. They were heavily influenced by wisdom, debate, and philosophy. This was what the church was facing. This is what Paul was trying to address he was saying, church of God, 
you need to sort yourself out. Because if you truly claim the name of Christ, these things need to be dealt with. And this is what he goes into now. Paul talks a few times in this passage about the cross or the message of the cross being foolishness or or being a foolish thing. He uses it uh, to, to bring us and bring the Corinthians into a realization of what the world thinks. Paul wants them to be real about their faith. He doesn't want them to be caught up in their own little things, but to actually recognize what the world sees from the outside as they look in. So what does he mean whenever he says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing? If I was to give you a blank piece of paper this morning and give you a pencil, and I was to ask you, what would your plan of salvation be for the world? What would it be? I imagine it wouldn't be that the Creator God would send His one and only Son to earth to die on a cross Rather, it would probably be the image that the Jews had of this great man riding in, uh, taking Rome out of the picture and reestablishing what was God's own land and people. See, this was the foolishness that the world saw. They couldn't understand. It didn't match up for them. There was no logic in how this worked. How could the Creator God, the God of all the world, send His one and only Son to a stable a manger in less than high circumstances. And then he lives a very mediocre life. By the age of 30, he does three years of itinerant preaching, and then he becomes a criminal. And he's executed in the only way that Rome knows how to get rid of people they do not want. Crucifixion. It's not the most logical way of doing things. This is why the message is foolish to those who do not know God. It doesn't make sense, but when we look at it through the eyes of faith and knowing God in our lives, we see it was the only way. Of course it was the only way that it could happen. God, perfect, sinless, created a world that was perfect but fell in sin how was the only way to make these sinful people come to him? It could only happen by a sacrifice, and the ultimate sacrifice, which was God himself in human form on a cross. It may be foolishness to those in the world, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This was how the world was looking at this church. They saw them as complete fools. So they need to be reassured And Paul needs to tell them, you're not fools. And because you're not fools, don't act as if you are. He even quotes Old Testament. Uh, He he says here uh, in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He knows that these are people who will have studied, well, of course they will, because it's all they've had, um, studied the Old Testament. And so he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 14. In the original context of Isaiah, it's a warning to Israel and to the people of Israel to say, don't try to outwit God. You can't outwit Him. Accept that He is God and allow Him to work in your lives. 
The passage continues as Paul continues in verse 20, and he asks four rhetorical questions. He first of all asks, where is the wise? Or or where is the wise man? That's the Greeks. Where are they with all their wisdom and all their philosophy? The NIV doesn't really help us understand this next one. Where is the scholar? Where is the rabbi? Where is the teacher? This is a message to the Jewish among them. Where are your religious leaders who who like to tell you how to do things? Where is the philosopher of this age? Again, the NIV really doesn't help us here because this is more a general thing. Where are the debaters? Where is everyone who loves to engage in these wonderful debates? And then finally, has God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And this is Paul's argument being set in motion. The answer is yes. Has God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. But Paul knows that for people to understand, he needs to go through it and a little bit through the verses that follow. What Paul is saying is this is God turning the world on its head. This is the world being torn upside down. A radical change. Gone are the old ways of how things were done. Because Christ ushers in a new way, a radical way, where we can have a relationship with God. He goes on to talk about Jews and Greeks specifically. And he says, well, Jews, they look for miraculous signs. They've always looked for miraculous signs because that's how they've experienced God. Right throughout their history with the waters being uh, split so that they can cross in their exodus from Egypt. Signs when they were in the wilderness of that God was with them. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Very visible signs of God. The Greeks, they looked for wisdom. They tried to sort it out themselves using whatever knowledge they had to try and come up with new ways of seeing things. The problem was neither got what they sought with this new radical way that God brought in. Rather, the preaching of Christ crucified became a stumbling block to them. It wasn't, in the Jewish mind, a miraculous sign. It wasn't wisdom because it wasn't logical to the Greeks. Jews, no sign of deliverance. No Messiah as they had hoped a Messiah would come. Greeks, no wisdom. It didn't make sense. But to those whom God has called, this is the power of God and this is the wisdom of God because there could have been no other way by which humankind could have been saved. What can we learn from this first section? The first thing to learn is that God has his place. We can't outwit him. We cannot think that we're smarter than God. We cannot think that our ways are higher than his ways. It's the exact opposite. We cannot even begin to fathom God because his ways are much higher than ours. We need to put God in the place that he deserves and recognize him as our God. We also need to remember that God doesn't need our help. God delights in using his people to bring the gospel message throughout this world. But he doesn't need us. We we can't control God. We can't tell him what to do, nor can we do work 
that is rightfully God's. God has his place, and we need to remember it. We cannot outwit him. And God doesn't need our help in trying to figure out the whole world because he is the creator of the whole world. Let's move on to the second section, that of verse 26 through to verse 31. This is God's folly, the Corinthian believers. He now moves on to address the Corinthians directly. He brings them back to where he started, or or, sorry, where they started. He says there in verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Who were these people? Well, frankly, they were no one. Or certainly in the eyes of the world, they were no one special. They had nothing going for them in a world that was directed by Greek wisdom and philosophy. They didn't fit into what was the model of success. But here's the wonderful words. God chose them, the foolish of this world, to be his prized possession. And why did he do it? Paul says it's very clear, because, but God, in verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God did it to show the world that he can do anything. He did it to say, you cannot do it on your own. So what looks impossible with all of humankind is not impossible for God. In fact, with God, all things are possible. He did it so that no one could boast. He did it so that they could rely fully on Jesus Christ. And this is another issue that we begin to see creeping into the Corinthian church, boasting. We thought a little bit about it last week, that they were boasting in themselves rather than in God and his power. Are we guilty of doing the same? Do we boast in ourselves rather than boasting in what God has done? I was listening to the radio yesterday morning, and apparently Northern Ireland are very good at one thing. Uh, We are good at humble boasting. Have you come across humble boasting? Yeah, we had a great holiday to California, but we don't want to sound as if we're boasting too much, but the weather was awful. So we say we really get our message out saying, well, you know, we were doing this, but so that we don't look as if we're boasting, we'd say, but it was awful, or this didn't go right for us, or that didn't go right for us. Humble boasting. We think we can get away with it, but really we're still trying to get out what our boast really is. And yes, apparently we are the best at it in the whole of the United Kingdom, by the way. Paul says that there's no room for this. Paul says there's no room for you to take credit for something that you had nothing to do with. Because in salvation, it is initiated by God. It is worked by God. And we are continually being saved by the grace of God. And he goes on to say these three things. He helps us understand it by saying, 
our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God's salvation plan was fulfilled in Jesus. And in that, that is the wisdom of God. And as we we live, we cannot boast because we have no control over our righteousness, our holiness, or our redemption. Our righteousness is our undeserved stance before God. Did we do anything to bring that about? No. Christ on a cross, resurrected from the grave and the call of God on our lives, our holiness, our spiritual maturity and the way of faith. How does that happen? Yes, we read and we pray, but who does the the spiritual work within us? It is the Spirit by God's direction. And our redemption, our deliverance from the bondage of sin, can we redeem ourselves? We can try, but it doesn't work. It is only Jesus who delivers us from the bondage of sin. And these are not steps of a saving process. Rather, they are three metaphors of the same event, our salvation that was effected in Christ. So we have no room to boast. We have no right to boast. And Paul concludes with another Old Testament quotation, Jeremiah 9, verse 24, to reinforce this. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The only boasting we can do is in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And this is where we must stop and think for a moment before we wrap things up. How do we see ourselves as individuals? How do we see God? What is your view of God? Is he a spiritual entity that's on tap and we control the tap? So sometimes there's a drip, sometimes there's a gush, and sometimes there's nothing at all, but it's at our direction. Is that how we see God? How do we as individuals see ourselves in God? How do we see our position in God? Yes, God is delighted over every sinner that comes and receives Christ. But I am no more special than anyone else in this building. I don't do God favors because I cannot. How do we see ourselves in God, that relationship? Do we boast in ourselves or do we boast in him? Do we give God the glory that's due his name? Do we, do we give him his rightful place? Because whenever we answer the questions about how do we as individuals see God and how do we as individuals see ourselves in God, the answers to those will determine whether we will take pride in ourselves or we will boast in the glory of Christ. Paul tells the Corinthian church there is no room for taking glory for what is rightfully God's. And today in the church, there is no room for taking the glory from God and putting it on ourselves because we did nothing and can do nothing for our salvation. 
Let's move on to the final bit, the first five verses of chapter 2. Again, God's folly, but this time it's Paul's preaching. So Paul has done this wonderful thing. He said, here's how the world thinks about it. Here's what's going on with you. Well, now let me tell you about myself. So he draws his arguments to an end by going to where he started and talking about his preaching, the message, this thing that he was communicating to these Corinthians. Acts 18 tells us the story of Paul being in Corinth. So he now comes and says, look, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Paul says, I was different. I didn't come to try and impress you. I didn't come with the language that the philosophers were using and those who debated, but I came with what was a genuine testimony of God. Now, whether that was the thing that made Paul stand out for these Corinthian believers, we don't know, but this is what he says. This was his plan. And he says, I I, I came like this because to do anything else would give you a false picture of God. He didn't come to try and impress with his preaching. Rather, the words themselves would do the work. And whenever Paul was with them, what did he preach? The gospel plus nothing. It was it, the gospel. Nothing else was added to it to make it look as if it was something for the wise. Nothing was added to make it look as if it was... fitted in with what was happening in Corinth. The gospel stood on its own and was marked as its own. He didn't dilute it. He didn't think, let me go to the disenfranchised only of the world and let me sell it to them. He told it pure and he told it straight. He didn't add anything and he didn't dilute it. When we come to verse 3, it's hard to interpret unless we look at verse 4. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So Paul recognizes that in preaching his message, it was all of God. The only way that he could preach was by the Spirit at work in him. And in verse 5, he concludes it all by saying, So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on the power of God. He wanted faith built on faith not on smart and fancy words. He wanted them to have a sure and firm foundation, not on wisdom that could change just like that, but he wanted it based on faith, faith that would grow and mature but would never change because it's faith in Jesus. He wanted them to have a foundation that was very firm on Jesus Christ. I've only ever done one building thing in my life, And that was out uh, in Malawi whenever we were trying to build a youth center. And we were all gung-ho. We were ready to go and do this job. The blocks were there. The cement was there. We got it all. We did it. We did it. We did about, oh, it must have been about that high. And these were the foundations. The builder came along and just kicked it all down. We were devastated. We were here to change the world. We were here to, to build blocks We thought we were the greatest builders in the world. We weren't. The building, because of our folly, would not have stood. It would have crumbled and it would have collapsed because the foundation was not strong. Someone had to tell us at the very beginning, otherwise it would have been too late. 
our foundations, whenever we think of what we found our lives on, what is it? Is it Jesus Christ? Is it faith resting on God's power? Or actually, is it on our own wisdom of how we interpret and how we think we understand God and how we think we understand the world by being God to ourselves? The only foundation the Bible tells me is one that is on Jesus Christ. A firm foundation. A faith resting on God's power through the work of the cross. That may be foolishness to the world, but to me, it makes perfect sense. And it is power, power, God's power, radical transforming power in my life. This morning we've thought our way through this little passage. The overall message of what Paul is trying to say is total dependence on God. There can be nothing else but total dependence on God. Whenever we are in that position of being totally dependent on Him, we actually get to see the real God Total dependence reveals the real God to us, not what we conceive as God. It means that we don't think we can do it ourselves. We can only boast in Jesus Christ and what he has done. So what does total dependence look like? Because it's well and good saying all these things, but we go into the world right after this service. So in two minutes, what does this look like? Firstly, it takes work. Total dependence on God takes work. It's a catch-yourself-on moment where we realize that we're trying to do things our way rather than God's way. Dependence is an interesting thing. I'm learning a lot about it. Um, For those who worship here regularly, you will know that within the next six days, there's an event happening in my life. And um, we're starting to get used to what that might look like come the 1st of October. I've been a single guy now for 32 years. I like to do things my way. I have a place in my kitchen for everything. My books are very well organized and placed on a shelf. But sharing life with someone else means something completely different. It means I have to catch myself on at times and go, you know, David, it's not that important that all your CDs are categorized and alphabetized. I might be able to live. Total dependence on God means that we have these moments where we recognize that sometimes in our lives it's okay not to have it all our way, but to actually say to God, your way is far greater than anything that I could imagine. Total dependence on God. It takes work. It takes effort and energy because there will be those moments where we have to catch ourselves on and say, God, it's more about you than it is about me. Secondly, it takes a reevaluation of how we view ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves. We can't just continue through life thinking who we are. We have to reevaluate. We have to recognize that we change all the time. 
We're impacted by what happens in the world. We're influenced by the social groups that we have. In church or in our own study times or, or with our small groups of Christian friends, we're, we're influenced by the teaching of God and we're influenced by God himself as he reveals himself to us more and more. We can't just think that because we were saved in one moment that we don't have to reevaluate our lives ever again. Of course we do, because we continually change. And if we want to be totally dependent on God, we must reevaluate how we view ourselves. Not to show false humility, but to truly recognize the sinful state that we have been saved from. Reevaluation of who we are. And it takes time with God. We must spend that time with him, learning about him, knowing him, discovering more and more about who he is. And whenever we have a greater picture of who God is, that's the key for unlocking our total dependence on him. Total dependence remembers that we are saved by the power of God, as verse 18 reminds us. Folks, this morning, the message is total dependence on God. The gospel plus nothing, but total dependence on Him. Yes, it takes all these things that have just been mentioned, but to be His people, He calls us to this place where we acknowledge Him as our God, the author the one who, who saves us, the one who could only saves us, save us. It may be foolishness to the world, but knowing the power of God is really something else. Let's pray.